pain has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Drug addiction is a serious threat to our country's public health because it leads to lost lives and lost productivity. Because there have been an escalating number of deaths related to opioids, the government, the Centers for Disease Control, and the media have initiated a crackdown on the supply of opioids. Some experts feel that this is needed, while others feel that the war on opioids is hurting patients who need them most. On the show we did called The War on Opioids, we heard how successfully Angelica has used opioid therapy to control 20 years of continual joint pain from a condition known as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, we'll continue to hear the story of Chris Heron. In contrast to Angelica, Chris began abusing opioids for the euphoric feeling and the sense of escapism they provided. Chris was a talented professional basketball player playing for the Denver Nuggets and the Boston Celtics. At the height of his substance abuse, he overdosed on heroin, crashed, and died for 30 seconds. But he's been sober since 2008, refocused his life, and speaks to groups throughout the country about the dangers of substance abuse. Chris even created the Heron Project, which helps to steer people to treatment Educate the public and mentor those at risk. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Purdue Pharma, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Millennium Laboratories, The Pain Community, and Boston Scientific. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Chris Heron has been drug and alcohol free since 2008. His remarkable story has been captured in a book called Basketball Junkie and an ESPN documentary called Unguarded. Chris, welcome back to Aches and Gains. Thank you. On our last show, you mentioned that your dad uh, was an alcoholic, there was divorce in your family, and you had an extreme amount of pressure as uh, an elite basketball player. And this all led to substance abuse. You started with beer and pot uh, as a form of escapism and a way to handle the situation. It allowed you to forget the conditions in your home, as well as the extreme amount of pressure that was placed on you as a talented basketball player. You then talked about using Vicodin that was left in your parents' medicine cabinet in high school. Friends then recommended OxyContin because it was stronger than Vicodin, and that eventually led to OxyContin abuse, costing $25,000 a month during the time you were playing in the NBA. You did this uh, for the feeling and the effect rather than to treat any pain you might have had. Ultimately, you overdosed on heroin, 
crashed while driving and died for 30 seconds. But you were revived and started down the path of recovery. Uh, Chris, did you sustain any residual brain injury from that accident? No, I did not, thank God. You were really fortunate. Now let's switch gears. The government's war on drugs, and opioids specifically, began around the time when the CDC announced in 2010 that there were 16,000 deaths involving opioids. That's a real concern, no question about it. What's been lost by the government in the media, though, I think, is that that maybe just 30% of those deaths involved opioids alone. Rather, the combination of alcohol and a group of medicines called benzodiazepines were also involved in those overdose deaths. So uh, we can't blame opioids for all of those deaths. What is your perspective on the situation, Chris? My thing is, in order to, to get out in front of this, the war on drugs should be in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It should be focused on prevention. Kids should be educated on what these drugs can do to you. I talk to kids every day, and they still project that I'm a heroin addict, I did cocaine, those are drugs that I would never do, but yet they'll take pills because they come in an orange bottle, and pills kill twice as many people per year combined than heroin and cocaine. Mm-hmm. When I tell kids who are taking Xanax that Xanax and alcohol are basically the only two drugs you can die from when you go in withdrawal, they don't know this. They're not educated enough about this. If you look at our health curriculum in in the Department of Education, I know in Massachusetts that hasn't been revised since like 1996, I believe. You know, we bring kids into a classroom when they're 15 years old and, and we're supposed to cover sex ed, bullying, texting, drugs, alcohol, and driving impaired in a six month window and say, okay, now you got it, let's move on to the next. Yeah. It's not enough, and we're going to continue to see this. And when I say educate about drugs, I mean, I, just wellness in general. If we're so concerned about a gym class, I mean, I'd much rather my son get better emotionally than physically in school. Teach my children how to be superior, to be healthy emotionally, and then you're on to something. Right. I believe that emotional health begins with our family, with the family unit and our parents who instill those qualities and that understanding in us. And, and here's a thought. In contrast to illegal drugs, legal drugs do much more damage to society globally than illegal drugs. And I'm talking about tobacco and alcohol, for instance. In the U.S., almost 450,000 Americans die from cigarette smoking every year, and more than 80,000 die from excessive alcohol use. But let me go back to the topic of reducing the supply of opioids for patients who have pain. How do you feel about that? Because, because I do have several patients in my own practice who benefit from chronic opioid therapy to function, to work, for example, to live their life fully. I mean, I'm sure it's affecting some of them, but, you know, here's my thing. When I started taking OxyContin in 1999, it was unknown. There wasn't a crisis over it. People weren't screaming about them. But the people who I would get them off would be people who had chronic pain, who were in late stages of, of cancer mm-hmm. or HIV. Yeah. Those are the patients that were getting them, that were put in, putting them on the street. I think now they're given that level of a, of a narcotic is given out for, for too many different reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mom died of cancer. She needed to be comfortable. I don't think per 30 should be given 
to me after having an ankle surgery. Well, I'm glad your mom was comfortable, and she needed to be at the end of life. The dose of an opioid can vary based on a patient's medical condition, whether a patient was using opioids as a therapy before a given surgery, and then the pain produced as a result of the surgery. Stay with us. After the short break, we'll find out how Chris believes opioids should be restricted. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Teva, the leading global pharmaceutical company committed to increasing access to high-quality health care by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Millennium Health is a leading health solutions company that delivers accurate, timely, clinical, actionable information to inform the right treatment decisions for each patient at the right time. Millennium offers a comprehensive suite of services to better tailor patient care. More information is available at www.millenniumhealth.com. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're here with Chris Heron, who's been drug and alcohol-free since 2008. Chris, what is your feeling about whether opioids should be restricted? And if so, how much? I think so. I mean, I think there should be restrictions on what you can give that type of narcotic for. Well, And who would you limit it to? I just think that what the doctors give for a wisdom tooth that was pulled, or someone who fractured their wrist and was put in a cast. I mean, it gave them Vicodin, most likely, 5 milligrams. We've, we've gone away from that. I mean, mm-hmm. now it's Percocet, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, 30 milligrams. Do you really need a 30 milligram pill because you just had a little ankle surgery? I mean, wouldn't Vicodin be sufficient and some ice and let's switch over to ibuprofen 800? And if you're in pain then why don't you get back in touch with me? I think we we give too much, and the milligrams, I believe, is is too high at times. I want to talk about heroin now. You had experience with heroin, and it almost killed you. The rate of deaths from heroin overdose has quadrupled between 2002 to 2013. Right. And the CDC director not too long ago mentioned that the escalating use of opioids has led the way for heroin addiction. Yeah. Do you agree? I do. If you talk to most addicts who struggle with a heroin addiction, I believe an extremely high percentage will tell you they started with painkillers. Mm-hmm. I've never met one, and I know a whole bunch of them. I've never met one that told me they went from smoking pot to heroin. Everyone I know transitioned from, from painkillers to heroin. Opioid overdose deaths are certainly a problem. What I think is still missed is that overdoses from opioids can also occur from a combination of things like alcohol plus the opioid or benzos or also known as benzodiazepines and the opioid. I think what you've touched on is is absolutely correct. You know, benzos, I think Xanax, Xanax has caused a great amount of deaths with overdose. Mm -hmm. That cocktail when they mix the two, heroin and, and benzos, to me, that's when I've seen most people or hear about most people overdosing or dying, usually those two drugs are involved. Mm -hmm. Now, some have said, well, look, this heroin abuse is not occurring from a rise in opioid use. Really? Yeah, but, but, I mean, you can, anybody can say that, but, you know, that's A, I think it's a little reckless and uh, highly uh, offensive. Every heroin addict I've ever met (laughs) went from abusing painkillers to hell. I've never met one. Hmm. Well, let me put this into a different perspective. I think that the majority of people who become addicted to opioids are really not pain patients. 
For example, about 80% of people who are misusing medications never receive those medications, that is specifically opioids now, from a doctor. I think the way that addiction occurs is similar to what you've described in this show, that it starts in the teenage years with a history of a traumatic event, either physical or emotional, along with a genetic predisposition, and then you get into drugs to self-medicate or or to look for intense uh, physical sensations. Yes, I would say a high number of patients who are taking it because they have chronic pain, you know, they don't switch over to heroin. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people switch over to heroin because the doctor shuts it down. Yeah. Take someone who's suffering from chronic pain, and their doctor says, okay, I can't prescribe the amount I've given you anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm cutting you down from 100 milligrams to 5 milligrams. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a good chance that they could possibly now, A, go to the street, and B, turn to heroin at some point. Those are excellent points to consider during this short break. When we come back, we'll drill down even more into this subject. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. Boston Scientific, a leader in microelectric implantable technologies used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Welcome back. Chris, what do you think the risk is that uh, a legitimate pain patient who's using opioids and then whose opioids are restricted severely will turn to the street for, for drugs like heroin? So if you are, your insurance is cut off, you no longer can afford the prescription for that many pills per month, and you're now limited to a tenth of what you are used to taking, that withdrawal will bring you to the street just because of the discomfort you're going to be in. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you know, a new chapter seems to develop. Someone suffering from chronic pain is now, you know, in search of, A, the pill that the doctor cut them all from, and B, they might be able to help that pain through through heroin. It's not everybody, but it happens. Say none of them do, that's not fair. Sure, no, I can understand that. Now, contrary to widespread belief, about 70% of the drugs that wind up on the street come from legitimate sources, uh, not necessarily from doctors writing too many prescriptions. Mm-hmm. And according to a 2009 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, Americans aged 12 and older got their pain relievers most of the time from a friend or relative for free. Now, let's talk more about addiction. Addiction in the context of using opioids for pain really relates to adverse consequences due to the use of the drug, loss of control over use, and preoccupation with getting the opioids despite adequate pain relief. In general, addiction relates to the loss of control over drug use or the compulsive seeking and taking of a drug regardless of the consequences. Chris, talk to us about how that applied to you. You know, I I think it was something... You know, obviously, I was, as a teenager, I was uneducated. Mm-hmm. I was unaware of the, the predisposition. Right. You know, the genetic component. I wasn't armed with that knowledge as a kid. But how did addiction, and specifically that compulsive seeking and taking of a drug, regardless of the consequences, apply to you? It, it, it affected 
everything around me. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, I was I was kicked out of college when I was 18 years old because I had never seen or tried cocaine. Mm-hmm. I did one line one night. I promised myself I'd get it over with and I'd never do it again. And I was I lost my scholarship to Boston College four months later for three failed drug tests. And that must have been a major disappointment. You have formed the uh, the Heron Project, and the, it targets young people suffering from addiction to drugs and alcohol. What is your message when you go to schools and present to them? I think what college kids or high school kids expect is is a guy to come in and tell them, don't do drugs, and they get really bad. Mm-hmm. What they don't expect is a guy to come in and ask them why on a Friday night have you lost the ability to be comfortable with who you are? Right. How come at 14, 15, 16 years old, you are engaged in risky behavior that ultimately can, can hurt you? Why are you willing to take those risks to hang out with kids you've known your whole life mm-hmm. by drinking alcohol or doing drugs? I remember the peer pressure that they were put under, but I also remember looking at them and, and knowing that they had something different than I did, that they didn't have to, but I did. You know, and as I said, as parents or, or even educators, mm-hmm. you know, we push for academic greatness. We push for athletic success. We do. And unfortunately, we don't push for emotional awareness and development. Yes. Okay. After your heroin overdose, you completed an intensive rehabilitation program. Right. Correct. And you've been drug-free since 2008. You've really overcome addiction and have been inspirational in public awareness related to substance abuse. How did you redirect your life toward healthy living and sobriety? Um, I had an amazing head start by treatment Uh with the place that I found myself, found it within myself to start the forgiveness process. Yeah. Forgiving myself and offering forgiveness, you know, to others. But, you know, I go to meetings. I stay close to people in recovery. I hang out mm-hmm. and surround myself with people who are going to only allow me to get better. I watch, yeah. you know, myself pretty closely. I don't put myself in positions where I'd be tested. Most of the situations I'm in uh, are extremely healthy and beneficial to my recovery. There's many different components to it. Yes, I mean, it sounds multifactorial, but I'm so glad that you've remained healthy. In fact, after this short break, we'll find out what the secrets to sobriety have been for Chris. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Stay with us. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Visit TameThePain.com to learn about treatment options for chronic pain. Purdue Pharma, making a positive impact on healthcare and on lives. Reminding everyone to safeguard medications in their home. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter or like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Welcome back. Chris, you've been sober since 2008. You went through an intensive rehabilitation program that was life-changing for you. What made that program so successful for you? I finally was willing to communicate and talk about the guilt, the shame that I had gone through Mm -hmm. and I had put other people through. You know, it was critical for me to be able to say it out loud. And I truly believe once you share your struggle, you are willing to receive feedback and help. You know, nobody can help you if they never hear you. And once you're heard, you are susceptible to change. And that's critical. 
It is critical, and I'm glad you were able to reach that point. Available pharmacological treatments for addiction aren't really that adequately effective for most people, unfortunately. No. Chris, what treatments for you were the most helpful? Group therapy, um, individual therapy, one-on-one, tying my family in, you know, at the right time Mm -hmm. when they were ready and when I was ready. Many different components were, were extremely beneficial to me. You're a doctor, and addiction is considered an illness, but doctors don't treat it. How is it possible if it's an illness if a doctor doesn't treat it? You raise a great point. I mean, addiction is a disease, and I think doctors should treat it. Unfortunately, many doctors aren't trained in recognizing addiction or certainly in treating it. But, but yet Harvard Medical School or whoever have identified that we are suffering from a sickness, from an illness. But yet when you walk into a treatment center, you don't find a nurse walking around room to room. You don't walk into a group and have a doctor teaching the group. You know, you have people who care, who are underpaid, who are there to to try to help you through this process. If it's an illness, then it should be treated as such. Well, I agree. I think we should do more to support public health initiatives that combat addiction. And lastly, I've had patients tell me that recovery is a process, not a destination. Can we achieve, can we ever achieve complete recovery? No. Gosh, please, I hope I never get to that point where I, where I believe I've achieved an ending. That's something that is extremely reckless. It is a process. There's going to be days where you don't feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. You're constantly working towards a better you. Right. For me, that's what recovery is about. I agree wholeheartedly. And Chris, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was an honor and, and a pleasure being on the show. I hope I was able to touch on some topics that was relevant for people, you know, hopefully my opinions didn't offend anybody, but anytime I get a chance to talk about this topic, it's, uh, it's always worth taking a chance. And I thank you for having me on and, and shedding light on a topic that a lot of people are afraid to look at. They are, but I'm glad you weren't. We have just enough time for a question. And by the way, if you have a question for me, please go to my website, paulchristomd.com and go to the contacts page and send me an email. Shania from Lansing, Michigan asks, Dr. Christo, my doctor told me I have myofascial pain. What is that? Shania, myofascial pain comes from the terms myo, which means muscle, and fascial, which means fascia. Fascia is a sheet of connective tissue that lies beneath the skin that attaches, uh, stabilizes, separates, and encloses muscles and other internal organs. Myofascial pain is a symptom often seen in clinical practice and affects up to 85% of the general population. Patients will say that muscle pain is spontaneous and that there are specific tender points in the muscle or muscles, and pain worsens when we examine those trigger points in the muscles. We make sure to rule out other medical illnesses that can cause widespread muscle pain, like autoimmune disorders, uh, for example, polymyalgia rheumatica or polymyositis, certain cancers like multiple myeloma, and vitamin deficiencies like uh, vitamin D or B12 deficiencies. Otherwise, if the pain is regional or local, treatments like physical therapy, massage, acupuncture, or even injections that are called trigger point injections with or without local anesthetic can be very helpful. I personally don't use steroid in the trigger point injections because there is no inflammatory response in myofascial pain. Consider Cymbalta, the generic term for that is duloxetine, 
for musculoskeletal pain because, in fact, it is approved for musculoskeletal pain. I have also used neuromodulating medicines like lower-dose tricyclic antidepressants for myofascial pain. Don't forget about exercise if the muscle pain is chronic. Graded aerobic exercise benefits all sorts of chronic pain problems, including myofascial pain. A couple of studies report just 25 minutes of cycle ergometry reduces pain, maybe from improved oxygen delivery to those muscles. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.